We're going to continue with our series on stewardship. The last two times that I've been able to speak to you, we talked about the stewardship of our relationship with God and how important it is that we monitor that and care for it. We talked in the midst of that also about calling and what it meant for us to press on with the gifts and talents that God has given us. Today, I'd like to speak to you about the stewardship of our resources and that within the context of giving. The title of this message is Stewardship, the Art of Giving. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. Paul is writing. Paul is the author of two-thirds of the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this to the church at Corinth. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written. He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Lord, help us as we study. From this passage, I'd like to talk to you about three things. One, the process of sowing. Two, the access to grace that that sowing gives us when we do it well. And three, God's resupply of seed. Let me give you some context of Paul's writing. The, this church at Corinth was started by Paul. And so his, his fathering heart was with it even when he was not. And he worked really hard at trying to make sure this church was on point. And it was a church that needed a lot of work to make sure it was on point. He had some issues, character issues and love issues and not being very kind to one another nor being patient with one another. And they loved the gifts. They loved prophecy and they loved laying hands on people and they loved speaking in tongues and they loved all those things. But... They didn't get the love thing quite right. And so they loved gifts more than they loved people. And that was a problem. So Paul had to write to them on a couple of occasions to try to adjust their thinking and their practice to be much more in line with God's will. And in the matter of giving, this church was a little deficient. Now, if, if there was another apostle that was over this church, had influence in this church, they might, have, they might have thought this church was doing well. In fact, if it was a 21st century apostle, they probably would have commended this church in the matter of giving. You know, most of the church, talking about individuals and talking about the church at large, only gives 2% of their, their money away. 2%. And when they do 2%, they think they've done something. 
Now, by your staring back at me and not nodding, <laughs> you're scaring me a little bit. Two percent. Bill Gates puts the church to shame. I'm not talking about amount. I'm talking about percentages. God help us. There are folks that want to fight against the whole idea of tithing and say that was an Old Testament concept. I'm not much about trying to figure out how to do, do things legally, trying to follow the law. Because if I, if I only try to figure out how to do things legally, then I've reduced my Christianity to a minimalist approach. I'm only doing what I need to do to get by. I'm not trying to ramp it up to bring a smile to God's face. I'm just trying to make sure I'm as right as I need to be to not be wrong. Are you listening to me? It's much more important to me to bring a smile to the face of God than it is for me to say, made it. And so legalism makes you minimally right. When you look at the issue of tithing, 10% is not the issue, although 10% ought to be the minimum amount somebody gives. The issue is how come you don't think everything you got is God's? What is wrong with you? I'm glad you're here, by the way. What is wrong with you? There is nothing that you have been given that hasn't been given by God. And somehow or another, we've, we've switched it all around in our brain to think, what I got is mine. Every dime, every car, your whole house, all of your talents, your time, your energy, your resources have been distributed to you by God. God is ab- has and is abundantly supplying to you on a regular basis. And the mistake we make is thinking that we have it and that not on loan. One thing you will never see, and that's a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. <laughs> you cannot take it with you. It's all got to stay here when you go, which is evidence that it's really not yours. You just happen to be the one that God's given it to for a minute. So when you look at it like that, you say, well, gosh, God gives me about 90% to work with. That's a real that's a real blessing. He's, he's great if you're going minimalistic. But I'm saying, Lord, what can I do with all I've got to help advance your cause? How can I give more? What can I do to bless people more? And this is what Paul is dealing with in the church at Corinth. Background. The prior chapter, he's talked to the church, chapter 8, about their... their their duplicity. They started giving, and there was an issue in the church in Jerusalem. Church in Judea, really, but specifically the head church in Jerusalem. During this time, there was a famine, and people were dying of hunger. And Paul used his influence with the churches in the regions surrounding in the Middle East, and he said, could we please give some money to the church in Jerusalem so they can survive better? And so he talked to the church at Philippi, which is a letter to the Philippians, and he talked to the church at Corinth. And he said, we want you to give. Well, the church at Philippi responded beautifully. And, and, and Paul was so impressed with the church at Philippi that, that he said, they gave beyond our expectation. And when you can exceed Paul's expectation, you have done something. 
This man lived on the edge of sacrifice. He never considered anything as his own. His entire life was given for the cause of this message. The man died at least once in it. It said that they stoned him in Lystra. Took him outside the city, the disciples did, to bury him. Now, whether he was dead or not, the Bible doesn't really say. But the disciples said they took him outside the city to bury him. You don't go bury a live man. When he got outside the city, it says he got up, kind of like this. Well, that was rough. And then he went back in the city. That's not my, my first alternative. I would go find someplace else. He went back in the city. This man didn't care about his life. So when you can do something by way of sacrifice, it impresses him, you've done something. And he said of the church at Philippi, they gave beyond our expectations out of their deep poverty. They excelled in liberality. Now, the church at Corinth wasn't poor. The church at Corinth had some resources. And they had begun in chapter 8, it says, to set aside some money a year prior when this famine started. And that Paul was going to circle around all the churches and have one of his emissaries pick up the resources and then take it down to Jerusalem. And so he, a, a year was coming up and he was, he was coming to get it. But he got word that somehow they had stopped taking up more offerings and they might even have dipped their hand into the pot to use it for other purposes. And Paul says, now, wait a minute. What you started, don't let covetous, covetousness begin to affect what you started. Now, covetousness is one of those big words in Scripture that most of us don't know nothing about. It's simply desiring that which is somebody else's. And it's one of the Ten Commandments, by the way. It's the last one. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's car, house, job, promotion. You covet nothing of your neighbor's anything. Well, they had already set it aside for the church at Jerusalem, so it wasn't theirs anymore. And Paul said, do not let that which you started be affected by covetousness. So he said, start up again. I don't know what's wrong with you, but start up again. And then he said, I'm sending Timothy, excuse me, Titus to you, and Titus will receive the funds, and I'm sending somebody with Titus in order to make sure that the administration of these resources is done beyond even your specifications. Now, they trusted Paul to do the right thing. But he knew this, that it's never a good idea to have one person count the money. And that was Paul's method of making sure that he was above integrity, with these, above reproach with these people and practicing integrity. And that he said, I'm sending somebody with Titus to make sure that nothing happens to the money and to secure your confidence in our administration. Paul was an amazing apostle. And, and, and then in doing so, he moves into chapter 9. He says, and by the way, if I send somebody from Macedonia, meaning one of the Philippians, don't, don't let my bragging about your care for the church in Jerusalem become a lie. Because the church in Macedonia really, really, really sacrificed. And I bragged about you to everybody saying, you started this by setting aside resources. And if now, if I were to send somebody from, it wouldn't look good. So make sure you do what's right. Because I don't want to be ashamed and have to say I lied about you. Now, Paul is using leverage, relational leverage, to help them do the right thing. Nothing wrong with that when people are intentionally doing the wrong thing. You got to help them some way. But then he encourages them. He says, now let me tell you something about sowing and giving. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. 
But he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, Paul, I am convinced, is making this kind of statement on the basis of what God has done for the church at Corinth. Indeed, for all of us. That somehow or another, we ought to let our, our predisposition toward, toward distributing resources be the same as God's predisposition toward distributing resources to us. Jesus said, I want you to be like my Father in heaven in Matthew 5. He shines the sun, sun on the just and the unjust. And he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Now, because we don't live in an agrarian society, we don't get that rain is a blessing. Or because we don't live in California, we don't get rain's a blessing. <laughs> They've been in a drought for a long time. An agrarian society doesn't have sprinklers back then. There's no artificial way to get water. And so every time the sky is opened with rain, every farmer said, God, you care about me. So when Jesus was talking about the sun and the rain, he wasn't saying one is a blessing, one's a curse. He was saying God gives a double blessing even to people who don't love him. He makes the sun and the rain to shine on the just and the unjust. That's how he distributes his kindness. And not only does he distribute his kindness in a broadcast manner, but then when you get into his will and become a son and daughter of his, he allows you to experience the broadcast and then the particular care he gives for you because you have decided to partner with him in his will. Oh, there are so many other blessings that come to the faithful. To those who decide to do the will of God intentionally. To say, I will not do what I want. I will obey the Bible and I will crucify my life to identify with Christ more. God treats people like that as favorites. Now, people don't like to hear that, that God has favorites. But he does. He does. I treat my children different than any other children on the planet. I give them things at Christmas, and I don't give any other children on the planet. They are my favorites. You've heard of Gergeshites, Ammonites, Hittites in the Old Testament. You can be his favorite. If you wind up partnering with him to do something special, he will particularly, not just in a broadcast fashion, but particularly... Find a way to get blessing to your life. He says, he who sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully, reaps bountifully. Now, I, I grew up in, in suburban America, outside Kansas City, Leewood, Kansas. My bride grew up in Drummond's, Tennessee on a farm. I mean a real farm, real farm. Like when they went to the grocery store, they went to the front yard farm. <laughs> truth, truth. Peaches in the front yard pecan tree in the front yard, greens over here, tomatoes over here, cabbage over here. And we're not talking about a little garden like I plant with 16 by 20. We're talking about half an acre to two acres, not to mention the farming he did for commercial. All the stuff that was in his, in his yard was for his personal house. He had pigs over here. He had chickens over here. I got some stories to tell you that I don't have time. But it, her daddy was something, just something. He eked out of the ground, scratched a living out of that thing to provide for 13 kids. Cynthia's number nine. Amazing man. But I didn't know much about sewing. And so 
she, she, wanted, she wanted fresh produce <laughs> from a suburban boy. And so gardens have been planted over many a time. Well, the first time I planted a garden, she wanted mustard greens. Now, I don't know if you've ever planted mustard greens, but the seeds are so small. Jesus talks about the, the smallness of a mustard seed, but that's of a mustard seed tree, not a mustard green plant. Mustard green plants are even smaller seeds than mustard seed tree seeds. Very small. And I <clears throat> was carving out rows and planting each individual seed. And she looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving you a garden, woman. <laughs> kind of lose the attitude. What are you, you know. <laughs> No, you sow these things. I said, you just throw them out there? Yeah, you just throw them out there. And they grow? <laughs> yeah, they just grow. I said, oh, I didn't know that. But it represents the broadcast fashion in which God provides for us. This is how he does it. Anybody ever plumb the depths of his mercy? <laughs> I mean, you, just yesterday you did some stupid stuff, didn't you? You did some stuff you weren't supposed to do. And guess what? You woke up today. The judgment of God didn't take you. You didn't, ex- you didn't wake up in hell. Hallelujah. See, every once in a while when things are really bad, you just need to remind yourself, I'm not going to hell. It's a good day. It's a good day. It's a good day. It's a good day. The mercy of God just can't be plumbed. And if you were to multiply the number of bad thoughts you've had and the number of things you've done wrong over the span of your life, God's mercy has always trumped that. The scales never equal. They always overbalance. That's how great his... You don't have to think about breathing. It's not like he meters out as much, the oxygen you need to have every day. I mean, I mean, today you get 1,300 breaths. <laughs> you, 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 you don't have to measure out your heartbeats. I had a conversation with my father one time... And I was getting ready to go work out. I said, Dad, you want to work out with me? He said, boy, God's given man only so, number, so many number of heartbeats. <laughs> he said, I don't want to use them up on a treadmill. <laughs> I said, you're right, but you're really wrong. Something, something about that just isn't as yeah, I, I understand, but no, no. We don't, have to, we don't have to measure it out every day. But we should. We've done so much stuff wrong that we are deserving of judgment. But he hasn't given it to us. He is abundant in the way he deals with us with kindness. Abundant. And so... This is how we need to be with our resources. A disposition that says, I'm not going to hold on and see whatever I've got left to give. I want to be one who partners with God in his mission and be a broadcaster of finance. Now, for those of you who are with us for the first time, you're saying to yourself, mm-hmm, talking about money. I knew it. I knew it. I come to church and talk about money. My goodness, I can't believe it. Mm. Well, I don't apologize a bit. 
We use our finances well. We account for them. We send out a report every year. We believe in excellence, not opulence. We believe in abundance, but with modesty. I drive a Toyota. I got a big house, but I got a lot of people. <laughs> I have seven kids. There, there's, a way in, there's a way to approach finance with integrity that should never be apologized for when you're asking folks for resources because it's an opportunity for them to give and distribute the resources God has given them to help others. And then in turn, as an ancillary benefit for you to be blessed, the primary reason to get the resources out of your hands is to get them into the hands of those who need them. We've got seven homes in South Africa, two of which we bought and all of those homes are for orphans. South Africa makes it expensive to do orphan care. You've got to have one adult per child for every six children, and you can only have 12 in a house. So you have to buy individual homes for 12 people. Now, 12 in a house is still a lot. But we could have, we, in, in, in Kenya, we've got 70 in a large compound there with five acres that we bought and built. And supply the resources for, for all the child care providers. We give them their education and we give them job training when they finish their high school. South Africa requires much more. But there are 2 million out of a population of 43 million. 2 million orphans running the streets under the age of 12. That's 5% of the population. Whatever it takes to care for those kids, we need to make the sacrifice to do it. Shouldn't cost too much. So we, we without apology, ask for resources there. 20% of our resources go out from us to help people. We care for Yorkshire Elementary down in Manassas. A whole elementary school we've adopted and provide tutoring, we provide uh, 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 coats in the wintertime, shoes for the winter, gloves for the winter, for all these kids that can't get. Free clinics for soccer, football, whatever they want. William Waters, retirement community. We go over there and provide things. We do things for the ho homeless downtown. Not to mention the fact we reach out to your neighbors. And all that costs money. No, I am not going to apologize because we are called to be the people that broadcast goodness to those who don't know anything about it. And we use your money right. I'm not getting rich. My, my children eat all my food and money anyway. <laughs> when you sow abundantly, the ancillary benefit to you is that you reap abundantly. The primary benefit is that other people, many more people benefit. But there's an attitude with which you need to sow. And so the second point under point one is that Paul wants us to know that we need to have a good attitude when, when, when we give. That's why when we talk about the offering in the service, we, we generally have a time. The person will say, it's time for us to take our offering. Everybody go, whoo! And most folk who have just entered into our setting say, these people clap for anything. My. Man. We do it intentionally because we are militating against selfishness and a bad attitude. We do not want that to creep into our soul. So we tell our soul, get happy about giving. 
Because God, it says, loves a cheerful giver. So the second part is, but if you're going to give abundantly, don't do it begrudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a happy giver. And I want to experience that kind of love in my life. Now, I know he loves me unconditionally, but do you know that there's a different kind of love beyond unconditional that, that makes the person who is loving you happy? When you have to love somebody unconditionally, that means they violated a condition at some point. <laughs> They've given you cause not to love them. They have given you cause not to love them, but you love them unconditionally, and there you get to prove it. But when you don't have to love somebody unconditionally and they're treating you well, that makes it fun for the lover. Make it fun for the lover. Make it fun for God. Make it fun for him to love you. Happy every day to love you. Now, when you do that, when you give abundantly, so abundantly, and you give with the right attitude, a happy heart, something happens. Grace begins to be supplied to you in a supernatural way that was not otherwise supplied. Let me give you an example of how grace works. This song we just sang that Tiffany wrote. Tiffany's one of our worship leaders up here. It's called Your Name, the last one we sang. The song's about six, old, six years old. It has the same impact on you today that it had six years ago. And that song, good theology, wonderful lyrics... Excellent melody, great harmonies, great chord progression, all the things that make a great song great. But the reason it allows for grace, because we enter into a a deeper level of worship when that song is played, is because she wound up sowing her time and energy in the presence of God abundantly. And she did it with joy. She wasn't mad. Her life wasn't always perfect. She's a single mama of two. She's had to struggle all her life. But she got happy in God every day. And when she thought about God being her daddy, she got in his presence and made her soul happy and did not complain to him all the time about the difficulty of her life. And she did it regularly. And when that happens, all of a sudden, grace opens up. And it comes out in songs like that through her that allow us to go into a greater level of worship through that same door of grace. That's what happens when you begin to apply the abundant uh, uh, idea of giving with a happy heart. All of a sudden, grace opens up to you and everybody else gets to experience it. Are you listening to me? It says that God will make... And God will make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency in all things will abound in every good work. Now, an English teacher would tear that up. That's a horrible way to write a sentence. Horrible. But Paul's not trying to be a grammarian here. He's trying to convey a point that drives home an emphasis that would not otherwise be driven home had he not said it like that. There are seven superlatives in this one sentence. Seven A superlative is a statement or a word that amplifies a point to the nth degree. And he says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency in everything may abound in every good work. Now that's six and I said seven. That's because the word make in the beginning is actually the same word as abound, but it doesn't sound right in English. 
So the way it sounds to the, to the Greek mind is this. And God is able to abound all grace aboundingly to you. So that's number seven. God is able to abound all grace aboundingly to you so that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound in every good work. Wow! Who doesn't want that? Any way you cut it, that's a good thing. But the way you get it is that you give abundantly and with a happy heart. And then you open up to a place, and let me tell you what grace is. Grace is that which allows you to do what you couldn't do before you had grace. And grace is that which allows you to be what you couldn't be before you had grace. It is the supply that allows you to enter into the supernatural on a regular basis. The way you got right with God was not by a formula. You got right with God because God supernaturally came down in your heart and changed you. It was a supernatural thing. It wasn't a religious thing. Although it, it, it is contextualized within Christianity... It was a supernatural relational thing that God came down and saved you, changed your heart, and made you brand new. It's called the born-again experience. It's called new creation reality. It is supernatural. And, and the supernatural does not change after you got born again. We continue to move in it. And grace is that which supplies you all that you need to become what you could not become otherwise and to do what you could not do otherwise. And when you begin to partner with him in the way he has prescribed, giving abundantly and giving with a happy heart, there you have the formula to open up the grace for you to partner with him in greater ways than you ever thought possible. This is for every Christian. This is not for the, this is not Christianity 501. We're not talking about master degrees here. This is, this is freshman class. He's able to make that grace abound to you. The beauty is this, and then he uses an Old Testament passage as I begin to close. He says, as it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave, gave freely to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. Now, he's quoting an Old Testament passage, Psalm 112, verse 10. And the Old Testament passage says this, talks about the righteous man. And he gave freely to the poor, his horn is exalted in honor, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, Paul, the best way to let the Bible, the best way to understand what the Bible has to say is let it interpret itself. And Paul uses this passage in context to emphasize the points he's making. But he doesn't use the entire passage. He leaves out exalted in honor, horn exalted in honor, because he's not interested in taking the entire passage. He's in, in, interested in confirming the points that he's making. And he says, he gives freely to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So he's taking that part of Psalm 112. Yet, freely is not defined in Psalm 112. Paul defines it here in, in Corinthians by saying, he scatters abroad and gives to the poor. So what freely looks like is this man went about like this, doing it, and then when he saw an extra, when he saw something in addition that needed to be met, a need that nobody else was meeting, he said, come here, let me help you. That he had already prescribed to give to the, to the poor freely, but then something else beyond the prescription, an unappointed appointment, a thing that was out of the norm, and may I say, if you are a Christian, you have signed up for inconvenience. It is your portion in life. And problems, they never come on an appointment. 
They never come scheduled. And they always come with a face. Somebody's in trouble. Somebody needs you. And that is not the time for you to hold back. That's the time for you to say, oh, I've been scattering abroad. But the righteous man, he gives also to the poor. So although you weren't in my equation, you weren't in my plan, come here, I got something for you. He says his righteousness endures forever. What that means is this. The, the way he does things is so right that it ought to be patterned by everybody else. It ought to never be lost. Everybody ought to look at the way he does things. So Paul is trying to bring that in and say, see what the Old Testament says about the man who sows like I'm talking about? His right deeds never get forgotten. And everybody uses him as a template for how they need to do whatever they need to do with respect to distribution later on. Oh, it's amazing. Now, after we get to this point, he says, now I know you're thinking if you gave, how do you get back? I just gave and now I'm not quite. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower. So there's a resupplying of seed now. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also su- supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, all of that is good, but the thing that is obviously missing is that he, he says, he doesn't say, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will increase and multiply your bread for food. He doesn't say that because he likes the size you're at right now. I didn't get many laughs the last time I said that in the other service. We don't need any more food. <laughs> we are right. He's going to provide for you food. That's not an issue. Providing for you daily bread stuff, he's going to do that. But the issue for the people in this passage about which he's speaking, are not, they're not trying to get their daily bread provided for. They're trying to figure out how can I meet the needs of the world. What can I do to partner with God? After I've given, what happens? Well, here's what happens. God says he supplies and he multiplies your seed for sowing, i.e., he looks at you and says, hey, uh, angels, did you, did you see what they did? They, that was a, Here, let's get them some more stuff. They know what to do with what we give them. As soon as he can find somebody to partner with, he partners with them says in, in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord look all over the earth trying to find somebody whom he can strongly support. Your job is to make his search short. Make his search short. Partner with him in this. Grace will be supplied to you, and we'll be able to meet more needs than ever, and you'll be able to do more than you've ever been able to do, and you will have all of your needs provided for. And the things that you do, the things that this church does, his church does, will be remembered forever. For it says that we will be enriched as I close. We will be enriched so that we can liberally give away, enriched to all liberality. Providing for every good work right now. I can't provide for every good work. I get a lot of stuff that comes across my desk. And I got to say, God, that's a great work. I, we just don't have all the resources yet. And, and, and one thing you need to remember about the sewing pro- process. 
is that whatever you sow is going to reap you a harvest, but the harvest is always later. You microwave Christian you. <laughs> you want it immediately you. I'm the same way. I gave yesterday. Lord, where's the money? I gave yesterday. The harvest is always later, but the harvest is always greater. You don't plant one seed and get one back. You plant an ear of corn today, you get 400 on one ear. Excuse me, you plant one kernel, you get 400 on one ear. God does amazing things with your little and makes it much. Again, he's looking for partners. We're doing our best to try to put up this facility with cash because we don't want a $50,000 note that we're going to have to pay a bank for 20 years and wind up paying twice as much as the building costs when that money could have gone to orphans, when it could have gone to, to kids to adopt another high school, another elementary school, someplace else to help our community be better. So we're trying to do this with cash. We're being the best stewards we know how to be over the stuff we've been given. I'm begging you, you do the same so abundantly give with a happy heart so that you might enter into the realms of grace that provide for you in such a way that you can do stuff you were never able to do otherwise and be what you were never able to be otherwise let's pray